the Professionally Speaking Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Professionally Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan J. Warner, Director and Executive Coach at Professional Presentation Services. And with me today is Bud White. He's co-founder and CPO of Tassin. Bud, thank you so much for coming on today. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I know we, we spoke earlier and I was really excited to have you on. I know you, you have a lot of experience in many different areas. So one of, definitely one of the guests I was looking forward to. Can you tell our listeners a little bit to start off? Um, what's your day-to-day like currently? What do you do right now? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, CPO, that's Chief Product Officer. Tassin Inc. is a, a software security company in the crypto space. Um, so yeah, my day-to-day, I run two teams products like product management. So defining and coming up with what software to build to solve a problem in the market. And then I also run the the sales team. Right. And when you say you run the sales team, what does that, does that mean you kind of implement the strategy or you oversee the, t- the, the team in terms of their habits and what they're doing, their ongoings? Yeah. So the, the combination of, of handling product and sales is kind of peculiar. Usually product kind of defines what should be built. Right. And sales, you give them a you know a financial incentive to sell it, and they just go at it. Right. Um, but I think the market we're going into, you know, it's still very new, right? Building new solutions to problems that didn't even exist two years ago in the crypto market requires a very close partnership between product and sales. So, you know, when I say head of sales, right, that that um, it means all the traditional things like you know what is the what is the sales number you need to hit for the end of the year that the business needs to continue on with business? What are the strategies you implement in terms of, you know, how do you go out and generate new leads? Once leads come in, what's the process to develop it based on the type of client that you're going after or the the type of sale that you're trying to have, right? Like I've always done B2B software and I find that it used to be, there's a very blatant problem and there's a, a piece of software to go after solving it. And you arm a salesperson with why your product's better than somebody else in the market, might be price, might be features, they go out and they sell it. But now it's a lot more of trying to figure out, you know, what what actually are the problems. And and I say this, I mean, it's not unique to crypto, but crypto does move very fast. So we're finding that what we thought was a problem for a client might evolve over two or three months because there are so many new things that have been built that it might not be a problem anymore. So it's a lot of um, it's a lot of business development, like trying to understand fundamentally what is the the problem that the client wants to solve, um, and what's the best way for us to implement the software we've built and and sell them something to solve the problem. Wow! So it sounds like flexibility is is almost like a necessity in your line of work. Would you say? It definitely is. It definitely is. So the the sales team that I've brought on all come from very traditional sales backgrounds. And it's been kind of a culture shock bringing them in, um, kind of having to explain, you know, not all customers look the same. Not all sales processes or the way you articulate the product is the same. You have to be very on your toes and really inspect, you know, what what are the particular problems in, in an array of problems does this particular customer have? And which features in an array of features of what we built can apply to that. So it's, it's kind of like playing chess, not checkers in the sales process. Yeah, for sure. It sounds like it. 
And from what I understand, I mean, just from, from my experience, being flexible as an individual is it's, it's manageable. I mean, depending on the circumstances, you can kind of adjust in, in real time. But as you have a team underneath you and that team grows, getting kind of unified flexibility or everyone understanding how to be flexible in the way that you would like them to, I assume that has its challenges as well. It, it, it really does. One of the tools I picked up early on as a product manager, I mean, I, I studied as an engineer, but I've always done product management and software. It's this idea of like agile software development. Um, and like really simply, like agile just states like, hey, the processes that we are using, we acknowledge that they might not be the best. And periodically, we're going to have a retrospective to understand what isn't working, come up with better process and continue. So in software, like, you know, working with, with engineers, that could be a weekly or, bi- or bi-weekly process where you go back and you say, hey, as a team of like, let's say 10 engineers, you know, we did, you know, this, this general practice for writing code, checking it in, running tests on it, and then deploying it. And maybe one part of that didn't work. There's a democratic system where we, we talk about what's not working and you, and you make it better. I've brought that to almost all of the, the teams at Tassin. Our legal team runs on Agile. Our operations team runs on Agile. And our sales team runs on Agile. So this idea of you know every week we look back and we say, hey, Bud set the framework for how we sell, how we talk about products, how we do something, right? It, like a very, not stiff framework, but at least our best guess at what should work for articulating our value to the client. And every week we have a retrospective talking about the things that aren't working, right? Is there something that isn't working for a particular client or is there something that is systematically not working? And this agile framework in bringing into the sales process has allowed us to exactly what you said, uh, implement uh, organizational level flexibility where we acknowledge that what we do today or the knowledge we have today isn't ideal. It's not a full picture and we have that that built-in process to iterate and do better uh, or closer to better. Yeah, that's really interesting. And a Tassin, uh, cutting edge crypto company that you, the, I'm absolutely fascinated with Tassin. I think they're a, just a great company all the way around. But And I'll get back to that in a minute. But to turn back the clock a little bit, but you mentioned you initially started as an engineer or you were formally educated in, in engineering. Tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about what your path was like. Did you always want to get into crypto and, and be a chief product officer as you are now? Or like, what was the journey like? What was the evolution for you like? <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because, uh, well, you know my age and crypto didn't exist when uh, I was in college. <laughs> so um, uh, no, I, I, I always knew I wanted to build stuff. I had that type of mind where I wanted to design, you know, whether it was, 3D modeling of products or coming up with better idea, better ideas to solve problems I had. So I ended up going into school for, for engineering. It was uh, nanotechnology engineering. So a little bit of software, mostly hardware, you know, kind of science and application of science kind of things. Um, but it was really in, in university, um, uh, at the University of Waterloo, I had the opportunity to do some internships in the software space. And that's where I really learned about project management, right? Like schedule management, 
mm-hmm. and product management, defining the thing that is be going to be built. So uh, really my curiosity and, and wanting to solve these problems led me into software. And as it happened, Waterloo is closely linked to BlackBerry because their, their, their headquarters or the, the university campus and the headquarters of BlackBerry are co-located. So I was lucky enough to get into BlackBerry as an intern and got into software security almost immediately. Uh, so back in 2009, you know, I was on the team that was implementing uh, cryptographic algorithms to encrypt data to send like to a BlackBerry and then from one BlackBerry to another BlackBerry. So, you know, very early on, I learned about, you know, all the different types of uh, cryptographic algorithms, how they're implemented, how security is implemented at the, at the, the internet level, and then how it's applied to um, sending packets uh, from servers to mobile devices. And then, you know, carrying on after my undergrad, I worked for one of BlackBerry's biggest competitors, Good Technology, doing secure email for iPhones. So, you know, I kind of fell into this idea of being a software security expert. And it really wasn't until 2016 where I realized um, that I wanted to get farther into finance, into financial tech, when I moved to New York City, that my skill sets in crypto were very desirable because the whole crypto blockchain distributed ledger uh, tokenization of assets market was starting to boom and nobody had five to 10 years of experience doing product work in a crypto environment. So, yeah, I mean, your question is, you know, did you always know you wanted to do this? All I knew is I wanted to build cool things. And it was a fortunate series of events that led me to being chief product officer at a crypto company. And, and really, I, I guess I should, one of the things that I tell my product team is that you can never know the future, right? So if you're defining a product and you're trying to explain to an engineering team the roadmap or the path that you're trying to go down, uh, the path is never linear, right? You're gonna take lefts, you're gonna take rights. Mm-hmm. But it's your job to always try to make sure you're still going in the general direction, right? Right. Um, and, and, you know, that applies to my path, uh, my career path. Um, I always knew that I wanted to do certain things like eventually run a company and do it the way that I want to do it because of the, you know, interests I have and, and uh, the types of things I enjoy building. I never really knew how I was going to get there. It was just a series of learning a little bit more, doing a little bit more, work on my own, and then eventually finding a team of co-founders to put together a company that, that is exactly what I, what, I want, what I want to be building, which is um, a crypto exchange that is targeted towards security-minded people, right? people who don't want to lose their crypto uh, or give up their identity. Right. No, that makes sense. So it, it wasn't like methodical because you didn't know it exists. Crypto wasn't exactly you know, booming back when we were in college. But, but yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it was kind of serendipitous almost that you were building this skill set for five to 10 years without, like, you never knew that it would be directly applicable, or as you said, desirable in another area that just kind of happened in parallel. Right. Yeah. I mean, there, there were signs when I was younger, I think, you know, the transition from high school to college for me was really, you know, going from very introverted to almost a, a trained extrovert 
Um, <laughs> and, and being at the University of Waterloo, those are some very smart kids. I mean, mm-hmm. when I was a kid, right? Uh, and uh, I, I, I very quickly learned that my, my skills that I could compete on weren't my knowledge of science and math or my, my ability to memorize. It was really my ability to get people to rally around a common idea and push mm-hmm. it forward, form groups, whether it's like, I mean, we, we had to do a thesis project in the university, right? And I had this idea that I wanted to build, right? And I rallied around some really, or rallied up some very smart engineers to come and do some research and actually build a prototype of, of this thing I wanted to make. Um, learning that in college was probably the most valuable thing that I came out of university with, right? But yeah, it was, it was really just building on that skill set and always knowing that as long as you're doing things that you're interested in, you're passionate about, you'll eventually, you know, climb to the the top of what you're doing. Yeah, it, it, I I agree. I I can't agree more. And you struck something there that's kind of like the the heart and soul of the professionally speaking podcast, and that is that there's so many brilliant ideas out there. There's so many like just ingenious individuals, and their innovations, their ideas, their concepts they don't get realized. They don't come to fruition simply for the fact that they can't express them. They can't convey them effectively. And that's where, that's where we come in. And to hear your, your story there, your anecdote about your experience about with Waterloo university where, yeah, there's a lot of brilliant people. There's a lot, a lot of smart students out there in a lot of different areas. So I think that that was a really interesting kind of uh, realization that you came to you're like, Hey, so how am I going to give myself an advantage? How am I going to stand out here? Well, I'm going to have to, you said, become an extrovert a little bit and we'll polish up some of those skills. That's really interesting. Sorry. I know I kind of went on a monologue there. All right, back on track. So tell us uh, in your day to day now, and, and I guess over the last few years, what do you find is is most valuable when you're communicating to your team, when you're communicating with your your colleagues, your team members on your level or your subordinates? What do you find is is very important? That's a really good question. Something I fixate on, you know, just personally, like I'm a visual learner. I like to see things, but I also I memorize audibly. I benefit from presentations where people have like very crisp infographics, but then they're telling a story at the same time. So a lot of my strategy in communicating is setting expectations for what you're about to hear or expectations that I have for what you're going to take away from what I'm going to tell you. And then I spend a lot of time trying to articulate the framework of what I'm telling you. So if it's, you know, explaining to a new hire, how we do product management, right? I always make sure that I have a visual of the framework that I'm trying to show. And then I audibly go through, tell anecdotes, and make sure that everybody's kind of along for the journey with me. And this, this is true for sales calls too. We, we have a fantastic team uh, at Tassin on, on sales and, and product marketing, which builds a collateral um, for the sales team. So I have a number of great uh, visuals, like workflows, uh, educational, like one pagers, things that I can just put up during a call and just show to kind of bring a client along for the ride. And this happened even today. I was on a call with a client and they said, hey, you guys have this consulting package where you help entrepreneurs launch crypto tokens. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? And it was really open-ended. You could like, like, I mean, 
Ryan, you're, you're an expert in presentations. Like you could probably think of 10 ways to articulate, you know, what does this process look like? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and the way I always go to it is it's very complex. It's very complex with branching paths. Like you could think of a long workflow with branching paths. So boiling it down to its simplest form, I just put it on a graphic. I put it on a graphic. I say, hey, look, here's a roadmap. Today, we're this box. Tomorrow, we do this next thing. We do this other thing. And then it branches out to these four pieces. And I've got a manager that's going to hold your hand all the way through and really just kind of use that visual to tell a story. It's worked well so far. Again, I'm sure I can iterate on the things that I do and make them better, but that's usually the strategy, both internal and external that, that I've used recently uh, to articulate these, these fairly complex ideas. I mean, it makes sense that whatever, if you're more confident with a framework, like that's usually step number one is getting people comfortable in their communication style. And if your comfort zone, the way you learn is, a, is through a framework and through an infographic, then you're going to deliver much more confidently, which will increase your effectiveness overall because you'll be perceived as more knowledgeable, a higher authority, more credible, all of those good things. So yeah, that definitely lines up with, with my experience and with my research. And let me, um, our listeners here don't know, I know you so, I know you very well. So I, I know I'm, I'm gonna kind of tug at an area that I know you can add a lot of value for our listeners in. With regard to sales, you are one of the the best salespeople that I've ever spoken with in terms of you're able to simultaneously understand what you would like to achieve or derive from a conversation with someone. And at the same time, be cognizant of their position, what's important to them, what their circumstances are. And you somehow have this, this way, I've seen it, and you kind of are able to marry the two and mesh them and arrive at an outcome that even if it's not optimal, they respect you and that they're willing to work with you again in the future. Did you, was that natural to you or did you have to work on that? I've, I've always been curious. Yeah. <laughs> again, you, you, you've known me for a very long time. So you remember how quiet and shy of a kid I was. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was, it was not natural. Really, I started to grow and open up in my early 20s when I moved to California. Uh, I had a lot of good friends out there, right, who were, I would say, much more extroverted than I was, but also very engineering minded, right? And, and I say engineering minded as like a tongue in cheek way to say likes to use frameworks, right? Because <laughs> uh, how, does it, how does an engineer figure out a situation? They look at like the outer bounds of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a problem and then try to make a framework to estimate what's in the middle, right? So um, I kind of did that with understanding how to read what someone's trying to express non-verbally, right? This was everybody understands most non-verbal cues, right? If I'm smiling at you, I'm happy. If I'm frowning at you, something's wrong, right? But there's all of these subtle business non-verbals that was introduced to me through, I think it was a psychology 101 class, or maybe like an advanced class that was talking about psychology, maybe in the business sense or the psychology around building meeting places, like from an architectural perspective. I forget where I was introduced, but I remember learning things like in a face-to-face conversation, the way that you angle your shoulders to somebody signals how interested you are in what they're saying. Mm. And, you know, I, I mean, that's something that was not intuitive to me, but like, when you think about it, you're like, oh, you know what? Yeah. This person's dead on. Then 
okay, you know what? They're very engaged. They're, they're listening to what I'm saying. I can really feed them information, mm-hmm. right? Because they get, they get, they, they're in they're, they're we're, we're locked into a, to a, a conversation. Right. But, you know, I'm sure you've all had a situation where maybe you're at a party or you're at a conference and someone you're talking to someone, but they've got their shoulders halfway 45 <laughs> degrees or 90 degrees away from you. And they're signaling like, I don't, I'm not, I don't care what you're saying to me. I need to be somewhere else. I'm just being polite sitting here. Right. And that's one example of trying to understand like even the nonverbals. Right. So that like the example was, does this person want to hear what I have to say or not? Right. But mm-hmm. like you could imagine going down the path of understanding body language, all the nonverbal cues that, that you coach on in delivery, coaching on how to, how to hear them. Right. And how mm-hmm. to understand if somebody is, is either purposely or, or subconsciously putting different tones or cadences or whatever in their voice, trying to understand what that means for where their head is at, right? Mm-hmm. Now layer that into a sales situation, right? For me, sales is always a framework, right? Go in, build some rapport, figure out what their problem is, try to identify a link between a problem they have and a solution that you have, and then push that forward, talk about next steps, incremental commitment, call them again. Right. Mm-hmm. But like you can't implement that framework if the person on the phone, or, I mean, we always at TAS and do video calls. Um, just again, asynchronous uh, communication is kind of the worst, right? Emails going back and forth. Right. Um, pure synchronous communication, like face to face, you can, you can get a, a very rich feed of all the nonverbals, but most of our sales are done you know, on the phone and we prefer video because you can at least pull nonverbals like, are they checking their phone on the side, right? Are, there, are, are, they, are they multitasking? Are right. they wearing glasses and you see the screens flashing in front of their glasses, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. you, know, you know, these are the nonverbals of our, our, our current world um, to kind of talk about like, okay, like you ask, you know, you're trying to go through your, your sales framework, right? And you're like, what are your problems? And they're like looking off into space, like, Da, 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 right. You're not, you're not going to have an engaging conversation, right. That leads probably going to go dead on you. But yeah, no, I, I, I didn't, I didn't know this uh, growing up. Um, I think I had one class in university that was called <sighs> entrepreneur or what was it? It was a, a management science class called management and entrepreneurs or something like that. And I remember mm-hmm. It was, you know, one of those night classes, like two hour or three hour long night classes once a week. And the first half of it was always a lecture and the second half of it was guest speakers. And I remember the only venture capitalists that we had at the time in Waterloo came to give a talk. And, you know, he talked about a lot of stuff like what is equity, you know, what, what do venture capitalists do? How do you pitch, right? All these kind of things. But I remember the, the one thing he left with us and it stuck to me to this day. And I, 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 when people tell me, what should I get out of college? This is still what I tell them. He told me, you need to go and work for your alumni's affairs office, the people that call up the alumni and ask for money. And his rationale was, you need to learn sales skills regardless of what job you're in, right? You're in psychology, learn how to sell. You're an engineer, learn how to sell. You're a geological engineer, learn how to sell, right? No matter what you're doing, learning how to sell is going to advance, right? Because it's learning how to articulate value to and how to perceive a problem. So I never actually did that. I never got into the alumni affairs to um, call up alumni to ask for money. 
but it stuck with me that that was something that I needed to learn how to do. Right. So I picked up a lot of books on sales in my, again, early twenties um, and then practice a lot of, you know, business body language reading, like business nonverbal cue reading mm-hmm. to understand what's going on. And like, <laughs> I, I, I know that your, your podcast reach is, uh, is quite broad. So I'll tell you a story and I hope that the person, I won't name them, um, <laughs> listen to this, but, uh, I remember when I was learning this, I was, I was interning at uh, Blackberry and I remember learning, like, you know, we were talking about the, the shoulders, right? So there's all of these situations in business that you can either read what's going on and try to understand the power dynamic, or based on your actions, you can put yourself in a powerful position. So I remember my uh, midterm review with my manager, I got to the conference room first. And this is one of those conference rooms that has a glass wall on the side where the door is that you open right? you go in. And it's just like a long conference room table. And the seats are either on the glass side or they're on the, the far side across from each other. Right. Okay, okay. So I remember I, I was the first one in. So I took the power seat and the power seat is the one facing the door. Right. Why is it the power seat? Because it makes the other person put their back to the door. So if anything's happen, happening, they have to look over their shoulder, which is like a defense mechanism. You hear something behind you, you want to look. Mm-hmm. So I put my manager in the uh, non-power seat and, and it worked because it's a glass wall. So people kept walking by and he'd watch my eyes track the people that were walking by and he was edgy. He would keep looking behind <laughs> him like, Hey, well, Hey, who is that? What's going on? Right? Right, right. And, and I remember like being so, so like tuned into body language at that point that I understood that it almost didn't matter what I said when he asked me what my self-evaluation for the term was so far, because I had created this situation where I was already winning. I was already in a position where he kind of felt because of the, like the physical dynamic in the room that I was a, a worthwhile intern. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, small, like learning, experimenting and having small wins early really lit a fire under understanding how to come into a room and not, not lay down technique after technique to like get somebody to have an outcome, but really using it as a roadmap to understand what's going on. And then laying very specific, like in chess, very specific, deliberate moves to show that either I understand what you're saying and do it on a nonverbal level when, and tons of trust is built that way or be able to read the room where someone's not interested and come up with an alternative strategy, right? Like I'm sure you've been in the room and somebody was, you know, you're, you're, you're giving a pitch on maybe some services that you're providing and they're hemming and hawing and to be able to stop in the middle and say, Hey, it looks like you're not interested. Am I wasting my time? Should I walk away? Right. Kind of that, that, you know, hell Mary and having them say, Oh, you know what? Actually, no, my mind was somewhere else. I'm actually very interested in what you're saying. My, my nonverbals are, incongruent to my actual desires in this meeting, right? So to be able to read that and not just trudge through with a sales pitch, but to understand like, Hey, are we, are we in this together or not? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Learning, learning that, you know, really open the door to, to conversations. And I've never really thought of myself as a sales person. I was always the product guy that the sales guys brought in to talk about, where the product's going to try to help close a sale. I didn't realize 
how much value I was adding until I started, you know, my own company and realized that like, oh, we don't have salespeople. I am the salesperson. Okay, then uh, let's let's do this. So it wasn't formal training, I guess is what I'm saying. I didn't go through the ranks in a sales organization of like software as a service business to kind of grow, you know, skills of like cold calling, developing leads, understanding problems. It was much more organic with just my own interests and, you know, reading things that I cared about, testing things that I read about. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, just trying to be, I guess, the best human possible, right? In a conversation where you're present, they're present, you're trying to understand what they are saying to you with words and nonverbals. And yeah, just trying to come to a mutually beneficial outcome. That was a great response. Thank you for that, man. I'm, I'm still processing. <laughs> that was a, a really, yeah, we kind of went deep on that, a little bit deeper than I anticipated. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I know we're, we're coming up on time here, but I, I do want to ask you this one last question. I know it's, it's for me, it's, it's, it's really meaningful and I know our listeners enjoy it. So uh, just a thought experiment quickly. If you went, went back in time to the Bud, the Bud White, say 10 or 12 years ago, and you had you know, 30 seconds to talk to him, to send, say a message, give him some words of wisdom, aside from uh, who's going to win the Super Bowl in what year so they can bet on it. Uh, what would you tell them? What, what have you learned now that you'd like to share with you wish you knew 10 or 12 years ago you think would expedite or, or would help you along your path? Ooh, that's a good one. Two things. One is the the bit of knowledge and wisdom that came from that venture capitalist that came to talk to us, which was learn how to sell as early as possible. Right. 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 I mean, I, I fell into it 10 years into my career. If I would have taken an internship or just done like six months of like sales bootcamp early on, I think I'd be farther along than, than I am today. And the second thing would be, and I, I mean, this is kind of just given the industry I'm in, write more code, Right. Take, take more coding classes. Even if you're not writing code as a job, um, understanding how code is written opens up so many doors and, and it increases your understanding of so many things. Um, I, would have, I would have pushed a younger bud to do more coding classes. All right. Yeah, those are two obviously very meaningful uh, pieces of advice and never go out of date, especially now in, in modern society. So there we have it, Bud White, the Chief Product Officer and Co-Founder of Tassin. Bud, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, I'll give you the last word here before we sign out. Anything else you want to tell our listeners? No, I mean, just keep doing what you love. Even if you don't think it's fruitful, you never know what's going to happen in the future. I mean, I thought that crypto, right, cryptography was the most boring, you know, second tier type of career I could have had. And then five, six years ago, it just became hot and I was already passionate about it. So I'd say, just keep doing what you love. And then like, you, you can't foresee the future. You don't know what's going, going to be valuable in 10 years. Absolutely. That's, yeah, that's true. That's deep. You know, but you, like you said, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, who knew that podcasting was going to be a job or you right. know, the pe people could make a YouTuber was going to be a job, right? So keep doing what you're doing now. And then who knows, five, 10 years from now, there may be a, a booming industry in what you've been doing all along. 
All right, my friend. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we really appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners are going to appreciate it. Tassin is an amazing company revolutionizing the crypto space, a big supporter of Tassin. And for all our listeners out there, we wish you the best of luck in your future speaking endeavors. 